We find ourselves in our Acts study this evening in Acts chapter 25. Look back with me just a moment at chapter 23 to catch ourselves up. Even before 23, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was taking up this famine relief offering for the church in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches that he had started. So he's traveled to Jerusalem with a gift from Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus and the other areas where he had gathered the monies together to take to the church of Jerusalem. If the Gentiles had received spiritual inheritance from the Jews, then they ought to share a material gift to the Jews. You remember in chapter 23 that Paul is making his defense before the council. And even as he makes a defense, there becomes a dispute between the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. And finally, they're about to tear Paul to pieces when the commander steps in and takes him away. In verse 11, you remember in, in chapter 23, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, you will also witness in Rome. Now you remember last week the Jews formed a conspiracy. Forty Jews said that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul had been killed. But Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, overheard the plot and went to Paul and Paul told him to go to the commander, Lysias, and he immediately took Paul away to Caesarea, escorted by 270 soldiers. Paul was safely transported to Caesarea, and there he was to appear before the governor, for, before the procurator, before Felix. Now, you remember as Felix heard Paul's case, he really couldn't see any great offense that Paul had committed. He saw it as a Jewish inside dispute. In fact, Paul says he has hope in God, 24, 15, that really it is the resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous that he had been preaching. So... Felix hears the case. Lysias knew that it was out of his league, that it required a higher level official than a commander. So when Felix heard the case with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jew, Felix became frightened because Paul was preaching about the judgment of God and he was intrigued and he kept calling Paul out of prison in order, in order to receive a bribe from Paul, which never came. So, for two years, Paul sits in prison waiting for Felix to make a decision. Felix says he can't decide until the commander comes. The commander's already written up his report saying he sees no fault in Paul. And so, at the end of chapter 24, where we left last week, Felix left Paul imprisoned. In chapter 25, we come up with a new governor, a new procurator by the name of Festus. 
Usually, when a new governor would come, he would clear out all the old cases from his predecessor in order to start new. Paul was a prisoner of Felix, not Festus, and so Paul could have reasonable hopes of being released because a new governor had come to power. Now, we don't know a lot about Festus's time as a governor or the procurator. In fact, the only sources that exist in regard to Festus, the main one is right here in Luke 25 and 26. The only other brief references are two by the first century Jewish historian Josephus, and they're quite brief as well. But what we find out about Festus is he was a good governor, but he didn't last very long. He began somewhere in A.D. 58 or 59, but he died from a sudden illness in A.D. 62. But Josephus gives him high marks as a governor for being fair-minded. So as we head into chapter 25, we can have great hope for the apostle Paul that his case will be treated fairly. Festus 25.1, therefore, having arrived in the province, three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, it, it seems quite natural for the new governor to visit Jerusalem when he comes into power because Jerusalem was, after all, the religious and cultural center of the people that were now under his jurisdiction. No sooner we shall see had he gotten there to Jerusalem until the Jewish power structure begins to put pressure on him to do something about Paul. Notice verse 2. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, you remember earlier those 40 men had said they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was assassinated. Well, the, the Jewish tradition did allow one to escape the escape clause if there were unforeseen circumstances. And having Paul rushed off to Caesarea was an unforeseen circumstance. So as far as we know, those Jews did eat and drink again, but they did not forget their thirst for Paul's blood. They asked that Paul might have to face the charges. In fact, they want Paul to face the charges, notice verse 3, in Jerusalem, on their territory, in their backyard, and while he was going to be under transportation to Jerusalem, they would set that ambush they had planned all along, and they would murder Paul. Look at verse 4. Festus then answered, the new governor answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea. And I'm about to leave to Caesarea, it says. Won't you send, verse 5, some influential men among you to go there with me? And there's anything wrong about Paul, you prosecute him there in Caesarea. And after he spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought forth. So just a little over a week, Festus returns to Caesarea. 
And Paul's Jewish accusers accept his invitation and they accompany him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. The very next day, Festus convenes a court, formally taking his place on the judgment seat. And I want you to notice how Paul's accusers assume a threatening posture. They begin to surround Paul. Look at verse 7. After he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They encircle Paul. They stand around him and they bring many and serious charges against Paul. Notice what Luke tells us, which they could not prove. Paul knew that he had narrowly escaped the ambush before in Jerusalem And he knew that the procurator might try to do the Jews a favor. So he was fearful of being sent to Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. While Paul said in his own defense, Paul makes his apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. He, He makes his defense. I've committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. And you remember what they had accused Paul. Primarily, they had said that Paul was a rebel rouser who brought trouble in his rebellious spirit all over the Roman Empire. And also, they said that Paul had taken a Gentile into the temple area. They had seen Paul with a Gentile earlier in Gentile company, and they assumed when he went to the temple that the Gentile accompanied him, which the Gentile did not, in which case the Jews very well, if they could have proven that, might have been able to carry out capital punishment against Paul as the Romans gave them some latitude in regard to the strict temple restrictions. Well, Paul makes his defense. I have no offense against the law of the Jews. I've made no offense against the temple. I didn't take a Gentile to the temple. I didn't cause any trouble against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Notice what Luke's letting us know. That Festus, as the new governor, is willing to do a favor to the Jews. If he could send Paul to Jerusalem, if Paul agrees to go to Jerusalem, then the Jews are happy. The trouble is out of the new governor's hands, and Paul's fate lies elsewhere. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer, I've committed anything worthy of death. Verse 11, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, interestingly enough, The Lord had appeared to Paul and told him, as we saw just moments ago in chapter 23, 11, you must witness in Rome also. When Paul played the trump card and said, you will not, he's almost defiant there before Festus, you will not send me to Jerusalem. He knew of the ambush, number one, and ambush number two had been planned. I appeal to to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he could do so. 
Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, verse 13, King Agrippa. Now this is King Agrippa II, who is the son, of course, of Agrippa I, who dies in Acts chapter 12. And Agrippa II is therefore the grandson of the Herod that we hear about in the gospel when Jesus is born, Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa II is partially Jewish and considered the king of the Jews. And so when Agrippa II and his sister Bernice arrive at Caesarea, they pay their respects to Festus. Now, Agrippa II, he is the brother of Drusilla that we heard about, who happened to be the wife of Felix, the former governor, back there in chapter 23, chapter 24, verse 24, Drusilla, his wife, the wife of Felix, but also Bernice was his sister. Now, the Romans loved gossip like we did, and Bernice was the sister of Agrippa II, but she lived with him, and there was Roman gossip that they had an incestuous relationship. She was one year younger than her brother, and well, if this was an incestuous relationship, she had been married multiple times before, and she was something of a, Jew, of a Jewish Cleopatra, Bernice was. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left, a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sense of condemnation upon him. And I answered them, verse 16, That is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his apologia, his defense against charges. So after they had assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat in the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him of not of the such crimes as I was expecting. You see, Festus has a problem. He has to refer the case to Caesar. And he has to write a legal summary of the charges against Paul. They are Jewish theological charges of which Festus does not understand. Agrippa being partly Jew, Agrippa II being partly Jewish and being the king of the Jews and ruling over the Jewish area. He was the very one who appointed the, the high priest. Hopefully he could help Festus write a wise description of the case and the problem and a summary of the facts to Caesar. So he asked for Agrippa II's help. Now what stood out to him was that when they actually brought charges against Paul, the charges weren't of the kind to which he was accustomed. He thought it was going to be some treason against Rome, but rather it came down to Jewish theological arguments. In fact, I love the way he summarizes what it's all about. Look at verse 19 of chapter 25. But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus might not have known much about the Jewish faith, but he certainly seemed to understand the argument. 
Paul was in contention with the Jewish authorities, with the high priest and the Sanhedrin, because he preached the resurrection of the dead. He preached that Jesus was the Christ, the one about whom the prophets spoke. So Festus says to Agrippa, the only argument I see is about some dead guy named Jesus. And Paul thinks he's alive from the dead. Verse 20. I don't know how to investigate such matters. I ask him, is he willing to go to Jerusalem, stand trial there for these religious matters? But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Agrippa II says to the governor, I want to hear this guy myself. Tomorrow you shall hear him. And so, on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice, his sister wife, amid great pomp, this is the only place in all the New Testament that this word is used, this word pomp. It means there was great pageantry. They all entered the auditorium in the right order, at the right decorum. The commanders, the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Paul comes in last, and in the midst of all the pomp and pageantry, he has an opportunity in the midst of this parade to preach the resurrected Jesus. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people, the Jews, appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. Here's the guy, he's saying, that everybody wants to die. I want you to hear from him yourself. In fact, he goes so far to admit in verse 26, I don't have anything definite to write to the emperor. Therefore, I brought him before you all, especially, hope you can help me out, Agrippa, so after the investigation has taken place, I'd have something to write in my summary. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to also indicate the charges against him. Festus doesn't want to look bad to the emperor. He needs a good summary of the case. He has no idea, and yet he does get it. It's about a dead man who's no longer dead named Jesus and hopes that Agrippa maybe even Bernice can help. Do you think there's some irony in the way that Luke writes? Do you think there's a little irony in the fact that Agrippa II and his sister wife, Bernice, though not a legal wife, living in an ancestral relationship after multiple marriages and the debauchery uh, that, which presents itself here, that they're standing in judgment over the prince of the apostles, over Paul. The world is upside down if Agrippa II and Bernice are judging Paul. And Agrippa 26.1 said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his apologia, his apologetic defense. In regard to the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, 
I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today. Especially because you're an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And just on a funny aside, you know, Paul sometimes preached past midnight to the fact that a lad fell out of the window and then he preached all night long after he revived the lad. So when Paul tells you to be patient, he has something to preach about. You better uh, not get out your watch. You better get out your calendar. Get ready, Agrippa number two. Paul's got a long sermon to deliver. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest set of our religion. Now, there was no group of adherents to Judaism which lived a more stringent life than the Pharisees. They were the separated ones. That's what it means. They were the, the holy ones. They were lay people who separated themselves by obeying not only the written law, but the oral hedge that had been, been built around the law, their own tradition to make sure they didn't even come close to breaking the Torah. And now he says, verse 6, I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. What Paul is saying in verse 6 to Agrippa II and Bernice is this, what I'm on trial about is not some wrong that I've done, but rather it is the whole story of God. It's what the prophets have proclaimed. It is the hope of God, the hope that God gave to our patriarchs and to the prophets. The promise to which our 12 tribes, notice he refers to Israel as the 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O king, I'm being accused by the Jews. The trial that's before me today, Paul says, is not about me in particular, but rather it's about the ultimate hope of God. What all our forebears had looked for. Verse 8. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? The center point of the gospel is that God has begun the age of the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of one rabbi by the name of Jesus. You see, that empty tomb 2,000 years ago was not about a solitary rabbi coming back to life, but rather it was the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. He was the first fruit, and those who call him Lord will be the rest of the harvest. It wasn't about one man coming alive again, but rather it was the beginning of the age of the resurrection of which the prophets had spoke, a sign of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Why do you think it's an incredible thing that God would raise the dead? So then, verse 9, I thought to myself that I, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he's going back to tell his whole story. At first, Paul, as a Pharisee, was obeying the Jewish law, doing all things that all Jews would do. In fact, he himself was a prosecutor of the followers of the way. He says in verse 10, I, I went after the Christians not only in Jerusalem, but I, I put the saints in prison. I had authority from the chief priests. I cast my vote against them. Probably speaking of the stoning of Stephen in Acts 
And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. I mean, furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. Remember, he's about to tell us he was on the road to Damascus, had letters from the high priest to arrest followers of the way then. Verse 12, I was on the way to Damascus at midday. What he's telling you is when the sun was at its highest, that he saw a bright light that made the sun look like darkness. It was brighter than the sun. They all fell to the ground. He heard a voice in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But stand on your feet. I appointed, I appeared to you and I appoint you minister and witness, not only the things that you have seen, but also things which I will appear to you. Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, but also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of the Judea, and even to the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. Verse 22, but King Agrippa, God himself, help me. I'm standing now testifying both to small and great, stating nothing, but what the prophet and the Moses said was going to take place. You see, for Paul, it was so important that he would attach everything about the story of Jesus with everything from the old scripture. It was the writings, the prophets, the Torah. The prophets had spoken of Christ. Didn't Isaiah say, I'm paraphrasing Acts now, verse 23, that Christ was to suffer? Didn't it speak of his resurrection of the dead? That he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Now, Festus didn't understand Jews very well. This idea of the dead coming alive was more than he could take. And he says, Paul, you are out of your mind. He could tell Paul was smart. You can read any one of the 13 epistles that Paul wrote and tell he's brilliant. He says, much learning has made you mad. You've been at the books too long, boy. You're talking about the resurrection of the dead. You're crazy. But Paul said, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking the truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him with confidence. Since I persuade that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Verse 26, I think, is a very important verse. It shows us that all that happened to Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, was not a secret. But rather, when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, Everyone in Jerusalem knew about it. In fact, everyone had heard the claim that he'd been raised from the dead. 
This was not done in a corner. This was not done in secret. Everybody knows about Jesus. King Agrippa, verse 27. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Now, part of Paul's brilliance, he attaches the gospel so closely to the prophets that when he says to Agrippa II, Agrippa, as a Jew, partially Jewish, do you accept the prophets? And if you therefore accept the prophets, then you must accept the Jesus to whom they point. Well, they spoke of his arrival, his virgin birth. They, they spoke of the suffering servant. They even spoke of his resurrection. So, Agrippa, if you believe the prophets, verse 27, and I know that you do, before Paul could say, then you must accept the gospel, which is the logical conclusion, the argumentation that Paul's putting together. Agrippa interrupts, Paul, you almost have persuaded me to become a Christian. Or in a short time, or in a little while, I will become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God, whether in a short time or a long term, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become like I am, except for these chains I imagine him now looking over. He's a prisoner looking over at the chains around him. I wish you'd be every way that I am except these chains. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. When they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another saying, no matter what you think, he hadn't done anything worthy of death. In fact, no matter what you think, he really hasn't done anything worthy of even imprisonment. And in fact, Agrippa II looks over to the governor and says, man, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, which means you have to send him to Rome, which by the way was God's plan, you could let him go. Now, you remember earlier in Acts, he'd been brought before civil authorities, Gallio, and had been let go because it was a religious dispute, but neither Felix nor Festus had done so. In fact, Luke tells us Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor, and thus he did not let Paul go. It was all political. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, not only would he not be worthy of death, in fact, he wouldn't even need to be in prison. Paul makes his defense. In fact, what we find here is this is not the first time, but the fifth time that Paul's innocence has been declared. The first time was by the, the Pharisees in chapter 23 and verse 9. And then by the Roman tribune Lysias in 23, 29. And then twice Festus says 25, 18 and 25, 25, that, that Paul was innocent. And in a private conversation with Festus, Agrippa went even further, saying not only was he not guilty of anything worthy of death, he ought to be released 
from prison. You see, Paul was absolutely innocent. But God was going to use this process of his trials to have him preach the gospel. And now that Paul has appealed to no one less than the emperor himself, to Rome, Paul must go. Like the Lord Jesus has said, just like you preached in Jerusalem, you will also preach in Rome. I ask you this evening, would Paul ask Agrippa, do you believe prophets and if you believe in the prophets you must believe in the one to whom they pointed to Jesus the Christ and then I I want you to see the response of Festus he's actually right Either Paul is preaching a powerful truth, a life-changing gospel, or Paul's mad. He's crazy. Either Jesus was the Christ or he was crazy. Either he was the co-creator with God, the Holy One of Israel, the one resurrected from the dead, or he was a lunatic. You see, the gospel leaves no room for a gentle Jesus who might be a good teacher, but is not exactly God. You must choose. Either you join Festus and you say, the gospel's crazy. Let's talk about raising a man from the dead. That's a dangerous conclusion. The conclusion of Agrippa II is dangerous too. I'm almost a Christian. In a, in a little while, I might be persuaded. The question is, what do you believe today, right now? Are you willing to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? We see what Festus said. You're crazy, Paul. We see what Agrippa said. Almost But not yet. What matters is what we say. Is Jesus alive? Was he resurrected from the dead? And if so, we must join Paul, even if imprisoned, to share the good news. Let's pray together. Oh, God, give us your grace and your peace, and may this powerful word transform our lives. May we, too, give an apologia, a defense for our faith, that we're simply connecting to the Scripture, the prophets, and pointing to Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.